ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, this week, it's one of my favorite episodes I do each year. Uh, it's become an ETF Prime annual tradition where I'll be looking back on the year that was in ETFs and looking ahead to next year. And to help me do this, I have two of the very best in the ETF industry. I'll be joined by Laura Krieger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify, and Ben Johnson, Head of Client Solutions Asset Management at Morningstar. Uh, two true ETF nerds who can both swim in the uh, very deep end of the ETF pool. So really excited to hear what they have to say. And perhaps we'll get a, uh, a prediction or two out of them uh, that, that I can hold them to next year. Now, before we uh, jump in, I do want to just quickly set the table by saying, look, it was another monster year for ETFs. Second best year of inflows, record trading volume, a bunch of new entrants, including some big names like Capital Group and DoubleLine and Matthews Asia. Uh, we saw continued innovation with products that literally Hadn't been done before. Single stock ETFs, single bond ETFs, night shares. <laughs> there, there's a reason why the ETF industry is called the Silicon Valley of asset management. And I could keep going here with the list of ETF accomplishments in 2022. But the point is truly an impressive year. And I would say especially so given the challenging market environment. The other thing I'd like to do here, just very quickly, is take the opportunity to say thank you. Thank you to everyone for listening. This was my 12th year of doing this podcast, if you can believe that. And I know I've said this before, but I truly love doing this. I hope that comes through every week because I just have so much fun recording 
And one of the biggest reasons is because of you. I, I love hearing from and engaging with listeners and guests as well. I, I feel like I learn something new every week from the smartest minds in the business. It's truly amazing being part of this growing industry. So thank you. I really appreciate you listening. And as always, reach out if you have suggestions for the podcast, guests, topics. I even take musical recommendations. So find me on Twitter or etfprime.com. All right, without further ado, let's kick things off with Vetify's Laura Krigger. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, great having you back on the podcast. You get the honor of closing out the year. That's a high honor here on ETF Prime. I will hopefully live up to that honor. Thank you very much, Nate. <laughs> All right. So look, uh, as always, let's start by recapping the year that was in ETFs, and then we'll get into uh, next year. And I thought, let's just start high level. So if you had to give us a headline for ETFs in 2022, what would that be? Hmm. I think that 2022 was the year of equity income. Right. So starting in the early months of the year, we saw advisors telling us in polls after poll that they were really looking for income, not in the fixed income markets, but in the equity markets. Right. And that worked out so well for them that I don't really think they're going to be back anytime soon. Uh, you know, bonds have other uses, of course, uh, diversification and so on. But when they're looking for income, even with yields rising, um, I think investors are going to continue sticking with dividend ETFs and uh, you know equity income ETFs like Jeppy, right? Which was consistently among our m most popular, you know, top ten most popular ETFs on the platform all year. It took over twelve billion in year to date in a single fund, uh, SCHD. That's the Schwab Dividend Fund. Another chop draw, over fourteen billion in flows. So like. Poll after poll after poll was saying dividends and equity income were super important to advisors um, and that they were seeing that as a way to deal with the rate environment and the inflation uh, environment, just kind of the, the, the twin um, the, the twin forces there that, uh, you know, that, that, that started to come into play around, you know, springtime Um and it's continuing to be that way consistently in poll after poll over the past few months. Advisors are telling us that they're even pulling money from fixed income and allocating it to equity markets. So I don't think this is this is a, a bit of a sleeper uh, theme, so to speak, maybe a little bit under the radar. But it's definitely when I look back at 2022, what am I going to think of? I'm going to think of this being the year of equity income. No, I think that's a, a great one. And I do think it's a little bit under the radar. I don't think people realize, you know, you mentioned SEHD and, uh, and JEPI. If you look at the ETF leaderboard on flows, SEHD is the fifth best ETF in terms of inflows. And, you know, it's right up there with VU and, and IVV, the, the stalwarts on the ETF leaderboard year after year. And then JEPI is ninth. So here you have SEHD and JEPI 
uh, two of the top 10 ETFs in, in terms of inflows. And of course, dividend ETFs overall had a, a, a record year. L- let me ask you this. If, if we were to pull back and just look more broadly speaking and look at ETF flows overall, I- I'm curious, given the market environment that we've had, obviously it's been a very difficult year for stocks. Bonds have had their worst year uh, ever. Yet we've seen well over $600 billion come into ETS. Are you surprised at all by the inflows overall? That's a good question. I'm not actually all that surprised by the inflows. And that's because people, investors, really do love to buy on the dip. Right? What, what is it that Nick uh, Maggioli, um, apologies, Nick, if I'm saying your name wrong, um, he, he has this uh, saying, he has this book, just keep buying, right? So down markets are a perfect opportunity to just keep buying, right? To tax loss harvests, or excuse me, tax, to harvest uh, losses in a taxed way, uh, to get into various investments at more attractive valuations, you know, with the expectation that prices are going to go back up because they always do. They always go back up. So, um, you know, this is not that surprising that we're seeing a lot of money coming in as the markets dip down. But secondly, too, it's a bit of a seesaw, right? So, you know, when one part of the market goes down, another part of the market comes up. So, you know, as inflation and rates were rising, we saw outflows in, you know, the high growth techie stocks. Uh, you know, NASDAQ just perploded. Uh, that's the technical term for it. Um, and then inflows started in commodities ETFs, right? As inflation hedging became more of an attractive option. Um, and then, you know, we saw infl- uh, you know, inflows going into short duration bonds and treasury ETFs and so on. So there's always some instrument or some investment that can help you deal with the current market environment that you're finding yourself in. And the great thing about the ETF market is that it has matured to the point where all of those different investments are now available in the ETF package. It's a it's a cheaper, easier, better vehicle in a lot of ways than, than some of the alternatives. So honestly, I don't think we're going back to a year where inflows are going to be smaller or middling again because of that fact that you know, if if the stock market's going down and you want to pull money out, well, you can just reallocate it into an ETF in a different corner of the market. I think that this year was the real tipping point for ETFs. And that may be a surprise to some people when you think about ETFs now having been around for almost 30 years. But I think this was formally the year that mutual funds handed the baton to ETFs. You look at what happened in the market over, again, $600 billion into ETFs, mutual funds have had just massive outflows. And I agree with everything you said. I I don't think we're going back. And I I think people will look back on 2022 is really the the pivot point uh, for, you know, I'll call this new ETF uh, era. Um, So, Laura, if we we put these monster uh, inflows uh, aside and and we talk about dividend ETFs, anything else? in 2022 that caught your attention? Well, I hate to say it, but I think 2022 is the year that I, I kind of got cynical on ESG, right? I, I've been a booster for this uh, space for so long. I've been covering it for most of my uh, career as a reporter. I was really uh, excited to see some of the um, 
just a plethora of options coming to market in 2019 and 2020. But this is the year where you're speaking of tipping points. I think this was my tipping point where I realized, okay, there's too much greenwashing going on. There's too many ETFs coming out that are samey and watered down and not, uh, you know, not enough conviction or even expertise necessarily in the markets that we're seeing anymore. Um, and I think that maybe investors sort of agreed with me because the, the ESG ETFs weren't really seeing much in the way of inflows as we had seen even last year or the year before. Now, part of that may have just been that it's a down market. And as I was saying earlier, you know, this was not the corner of the market that people decided that they wanted to put their money into. They wanted to put it into something else. Um, but I think that ESG as an acronym is, uh, it's gone the way of smart beta, right? Or the dodo, right? It's, it's a meaningless umbrella term that doesn't really mean anything. Um, and so you're seeing potential alternatives arise like Paris aligned and climate transition and energy transition. And it remains to be seen if any of them really catch on, uh, and if any of them, um, you really become the the new umbrella term, but I think that speaks to a sort of cynicism that has crept into that market and steeped into that market about what um, ESG can be, should be, and you know the the interest in um, a basket of stocks that are uh, selected by some opaque rating methodology that differs from rating firm to rating firm. It isn't really quite understood or explained. Um, I think that that's not as interesting to folks as something like uh, a basket of lithium miners. Like you can understand that you can wrap your head around it and you can see how lithium miners can factor into the next 20 years of energy and, you know, uh, battery storage and like I can immediately grok that. I can't necessarily grok like an ESG ranked opaque index. Who is this that I'm talking to this week? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I can't believe my, uh, my, my ears. Look, I think the, uh, everybody knows where I stand on ESG, but I think clearly performance has been an issue this year and that you've had the energy sector, traditional energy, fossil fuels, top performing sector in the market. You've had technology and growthier stocks underperformed. We know in general, ESG ETFs tend to be underweight traditional energy, overweight technology and growth. And so performance has been a challenge. And in the markets, in the financial markets, performance is king. And it's, it's in most areas, when you see something outperform, you'll see flows chase that. And when you see areas underperform, you'll see investors take money uh, out of that segment of the market. I think that's what we've seen. I think the other aspect here is that this year, ESG, uh, ESG became highly politicized. And we, we can we can debate whether, you know, what caused that, whether it's good or bad. But I think a lot of investors, um, they're fatigued on, on the, the whole political uh, narrative. And, and rightly or wrongly, ESG has some political undertones to it. And, and I'll tell you, like, as an advisor, you know, one of the golden rules that we have is not to mix politics with portfolios. We have to assume 
that 50% of our clients are on one side of the aisle and 50% are on the other. And clearly there's a spectrum there, right? But uh, I, I just don't, I, I don't think people want politics mixed with their portfolios. And for whatever reason, again, we can debate wh why that is. I do believe that politics and ESG have become intertwined. I don't disagree with that statement. I wonder if it, it certainly didn't start in 2022. It kind of came to a head in 2022 with some, some launches that were um, you know, very high profile and so on. But, you know, I will say one thing about in defense of ESG. Um, we're seeing a lot of interest on our platform and, uh, you know, in terms of engagement and various stickers and stuff in renewable energy and funds that are, again, easy to understand and that can slot into, uh, you know, a, a portfolio of energy, like an energy complex portfolio. So you might hold MLPs and rene renewable energy stocks and oil services and all these other things. Um, and, and I think that's kind of the way that people are starting to think about ESG, quote unquote, um, as, as just part, uh, a, a thematic, a very thematic sleeve. Um, and that's where we're seeing the interest remain. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm willing to be proven wrong. Like, please, please, ESG, prove me wrong on this one. I want to, you know, believe or whatever. Um, but I, I think to your point about there being politics involved in um, you know, mixing of politics and ESG, this is one place where we actually saw the politics peeling back, right? Renewable energy was something that people both sides of the aisle are now interested in and realize that this is kind of part of the energy transition is something um, that I can invest in. No matter what my political beliefs might be, I should be interested in the, in the energy transition. I should be positioning myself and my portfolio for that. So um, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, this will certainly be uh, interesting to watch moving forward. And uh, look, I, I'm with you. I mean, I try to just look at the data and, it, it, you know, try to make logic, draw logical conclusions. And, it, it, you know, investors have told us this year that um, sort of the doing good via investments is secondary. You know, we're seeing that in flow. So uh, in any event, we, you and I could debate that for, for hours. Uh, before we move on here, anything else in 2022 that you would highlight on the well, we ETF side? I'm sorry, we have to talk about commodities, right? Commodities are uh, hip again. They're cool, right? And all it took was a war. Right? Um, and so, I mean, suddenly now everybody is an armchair analyst for the grains markets and base metals markets and carbon investing and, and so on and so forth. So it feels a lot like when I first cut my teeth as a commodities reporter, the sort of excitement and, and general interest in commodities. But I'm hearing people now saying that um, commodities should be a strategic portion of your portfolio for good. Like not just for now, not as just for the next couple of years, but for good. And I haven't heard that in it for almost, you know, 15, 20 years. So and since the last like big commodities bubble. And now commodities prices have gone through the roof and they've come back down and inflows um, into commodities ETFs as a asset class uh, sort of follow the same pattern this year. Um, but this is really the year where I think people started to take 
notice of commodities and in a broader sense, of alternatives in general, right? So managed futures uh, are also something that really took off in 2022. Um, funds like DBMF from uh, IMGP and, and, and Dynamic Beta, um, that's kind of the poster child that went over to a billion dollars in just a couple of months this year. Um, but anything that was sort of outside the realm of stocks and bonds, which as you rightly noted, were both challenged this year, um, people turned to alternative options. So they turned to alternatives and commodities and managed futures and so on were, were part of that. Yeah, I think DBMF, I've said this multiple times, that has to be, if it's not the ETF of the year, it's certainly in the top three of the ETFs. The, the one question I have, and you alluded to this um, a little bit, if you look at commodities as a whole, they have performed pretty well. It depends on the specific commodity, but on the whole, pretty good year. But it, it, here's the thing. So I saw a uh, a chart in the Wall Street Journal recently that showed commodity ETF flows, and they're basically flat on the year. And it's interesting. So there was this nearly $21 billion in inflows into co uh, commodity ETFs in the first four months of the year. And since then, nearly all of that has come back out. Uh, with gold ETFs making up like 70% of that number. So I, I'm just curious, what do you make of that? Especially when you look at gold in particular, that's performed pretty well, relatively speaking. It's only down something like 2 or 3% on the year uh, compared to the carnage we've seen in stocks and bonds. What, why do you think flows haven't been stronger? Well, two things, a couple of things, actually. So, so when it comes to gold ETFs, I think people are uh, investing in gold for much the same reasons that they've always invested in gold, which is that it's a good inflation hedge, right? People think gold, they think inflation hedge. Well, we seem to be passing the worst of inflation now. It's, you know, coming back down to uh, some sort of, it's going to be higher than it was before. I guess that's the consensus, but, um, you know, it's not quite the lofty place that it was before. So uh, gold's role as an inflation hedge, you know, everybody was piling into gold and now they're sort of stepping back from that. So um, it's no surprise to me at all that as inflation moderates a little bit, we're seeing outflows from the gold space, which are obscuring the fact that commodities inflows though for the rest of the commodity space are still you know, fairly robust and strong. And I mean, there's been some peel off, right, from those lofty highs that you mentioned. Um, right after the Russia-Ukraine war began, we saw just billions and billions and billions of dollars going into grains ETFs and metals ETFs and so on. And some of that has come back, but not as much as you might think, right? So um, PDBC is kind of the poster child for, um, you know, broad-based commodities exposure in my mind. Um and the, the engagement for that, uh, that we're seeing on our side, um, is still fairly strong. It's still, I mean, it's a little less than it was before for sure, but, you know, it, it is much higher than it was this time a year ago, right? So um, as far as commodity ETFs go, I think we're in a real interesting spot for the commodities market. There hasn't been a lot of innovation for many years um, because there wasn't a lot of interest in commodities um, for a very long time since 2007, 2008. But now we're seeing things like a physical uranium ETF launching and all of these electric battery metals uh, ETFs launching. Um, 
I mentioned this, you know, before we uh, we got on on the mics. But did you know that there wasn't an option to have K one free exposure to the grains markets until today? Like there was K one free broad based commodities that's been around forever, but for grains specifically, it wasn't there, and that was astonishing to me. Um, you know, but then we had two ETFs, Till and. PDBA uh, launched this year that offered that sort of exposure. So a lot of exciting and I think we're exciting innovation taking place this year. I think where that's going to continue into 2023. ETF investing never stops evolving. And thankfully for investors, it's gone far beyond passively tracking index returns. John Hancock Investment Management's active fixed income ETFs are backed by deep research from Manulife Investment Management and have the flexibility to navigate today's shifting market environment. Find out how our active fixed income ETFs can help you prepare for whatever lies ahead. Learn more at jhinvestments.com ETF. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal. You can find a prospectus at jhinvestments.com. The prospectus includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should carefully consider before investing. John Hancock's fixed income ETFs are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC in the United States and are sub-advised by Manulife Investment Management US LLC. Foresight is not affiliated with John Hancock Investment Management Distributors LLC or Manulife Investment Management US LLC. Okay, so if I had to, to recap your top three stories here, there's this renewed interest in commodity ETFs, uh, obviously equity income ETFs, dividend ETFs having a record year. And then the last one, which I love, you got uh, cynical on ESG ETFs. Uh, before we move on to 2023, I, I'm just curious, on new launches, did you happen to have a favorite new ETF launch or, or launches this year? Or if you don't want to classify it as a, a favorite, maybe just a launch that you found uh, particularly noteworthy. It was difficult to pick. And in fact, on uh, our site, we had a, you know, on Fridays, we do the, the Venify Voices On column. And that was actually what we discussed. Um, you know, the most recent one was about the, our, our favorite launches of the year. And boy, was it tough to pick. So um, I think one of my favorite, well, two, I'll, I'll highlight two. One is the Night Shares ETFs. Like, very rarely am I just sort of blindsided by a concept or a structure or strategy. I don't know why I'd never thought about this as a possibility, but the Nightshares ETFs uh, are premised on the idea that um, they buy stocks or the managers buy stocks when the markets um, are closed and then they sell them when the market's open. So the idea is that you're avoiding the, the intraday volatility when you do that. Um, there's a lot of like ups and downs during the day. And so um, you can reduce your volatility in, in an investment um, by only owning securities overnight. It's called the night effect. So it's not the night shares ETFs. They're not like buying and selling securities every single day. And they're using a range of derivatives to access the exposure and so on. But it's, it's an interesting strategy that has never been put in ETF form and frankly, never even occurred to me to put it in ETF format. So kudos to night shares. Like that was, that was genuinely surprising to me. And it's, I've been around a while. It's hard to surprise me. Um, 
And then secondly, the one that um, I thought was really interesting is probably what a lot of people thought was really interesting was the single security ETFs. Um, I think that we, I remember we had a number of episodes of ETF Prime where I came on and Dave came on talking about the approval process and some of the early products that came out, some of the single stock ETFs, like single Tesla um, bear and bull versions and bull and bear on uh, Apple and so on. Um, but you know, the, the acceptance rate or the use rate of these single stock ETFs wasn't really that high. It was the single bond ETFs that really seemed to capture the imagination, uh, seemed to capture the bulk of the flows too, right? So, um, these were from FM, I think is how you say that. Uh, there was a, a ticker T-bill, which holds T-bills and then U2, uh, which holds two-year notes, and both of those have the highest AUM. They're almost uh, well. It's a 192 for T bill and 158 million for for YouTube. Um, but it, it, you know that's that's not messing around money. Like that's good. That's some good inflows for a year, uh, for less than a year, really. So like these are finding their users. These products are finding their users, and and they have very strong and clear use cases. Uh, it's difficult to access treasuries, uh, single treasuries. It's you end up paying some amount of money more than you might expect to do so. And to have it in a way to, to own those securities in a way that lines up with advisors, um, you know, reporting software and trading software and platforms and so on. It, it's not always intuitive. You might think it would be intuitive, but it's not. So these ETS really do solve a problem and clearly they're getting some investment from it. So um, I think if I had to uh, say what my favorites were, it would be those two. Those were the two that kind of stood out for me. Yeah. In my quick comments there, I think the Nightshares ETS, clearly one of the more uh, innovative product offerings to come out this year. In my opinion, those are going to come down to performance, right? Yeah. The, and they they got out of the gate a little slow. They were underperforming. There's one that's uh, S&P 500 and then one that's small caps, and, and both of them were underperforming, but they have come back. Uh, but I think it's going to take some significant outperformance to really find an investor audience there. But nonetheless, very innovative launches. And then I agree with you. I mean, the single security ETFs, clearly one of the top stories of the year. Single bond ETFs are where there's investor interest. I think we're going to have to have a much more uh, stable market environment for single stock ETFs to find an audience. I just think that's such a secondary consideration now. Investors aren't looking to play earnings announcements and, and those sorts of things around specific companies when they have much bigger concerns out there. So I think, you know, once the market will say normalizes, I still think single stock ETFs will find an audience. Uh, it's just, I don't think we're in the right environment for those. Um, so, okay. With our remaining time here, let's get to ETFs in 2023. Uh, just tell us, what, what are you watching for? Do you have any big predictions? Uh, anything on your radar? What, what, what say you here? So my first prediction for 2023 is I think this is the year where we officially set aside the idea of 60-40. And 60-40, officially, we hold a memorial for it because it's dead. It's going to be dead. Uh, I think the new thinking will be that 60-40 is going to evolve into something like 65-25-5 or 70-20-30 or some iteration like that. 
and and here's what I mean by that breakdown. So one, people are going to continue to look to equities and they might have a larger than historical allocation to equities markets because they're using equities to solve some of the same problems that they used to use fixed income to solve. So income, right? Income is, people have gotten used to finding income from the equity markets. They're not going to shift. Even if yields are rising, um, they're not going to just completely abandon those dividend and uh, ETFs and the JEPIs and so on. Um, They're going to branch back out into fixed income, but they're going to hold on to that equity allocation. Fixed income is going to remain in portfolios, but it's going to maybe fade in um, size. It's going to it's going to shrink in uh, the amount of uh, that we're actually allocating to it, and that's going to leave room for uh, alternatives like liquid alts and commodities and real estate. Uh, those are going to become a permanent part of mom and pop portfolios. Um, you know, people are just going to stop thinking that they don't need, you know, that, that, that's too complicated for me. And that's not, you know, that's beyond where I need to, to go with my portfolio. Um, this is, I think 2023 is going to be the year where we realize that things really have fundamentally shifted. And that means that portfolios have fundamentally got to adapt. Yeah, I don't think there's any question more investors are going to be looking at alts, in particular commodities, which we touched on earlier. I guess my only counter to what you're saying, well, first of all, I think people have been proclaiming the death of the 60-40 portfolio for years now. Uh, and I, I don't know that that's happened, but my, my counter would be there is actually now income and fixed income, right? You can scoop up for 5% plus relatively risk-free do you think that matters at all? Or do you think investors are just so scarred after this year that they're not coming back to fixed income in the, in the same fashion? I think it's some of that for sure. There's a little bit of a hesitation for, for that reason, but why would you go for four or 5% when you can get 14% with Jeppy? You know, why you get used to those juicy, juicy, you know, yields, right? You get used to what you get. Uh, But there are different risks there. There are different risks. There absolutely are. But um, you got to balance it out. And maybe that's what the fixed income part becomes is just that ballast that uh, people are always talking about how fixed income is the ballast. Um, You know, you you, maybe maybe 2023 is the way that it's the year that we start thinking about risk in different ways, too. So anything else on your uh, on your radar? I do. I do have another uh, another big prediction. It's about crypto, Ooh. which I know is your oh. favorite topic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I do think that 2023 is the year that we're going to see crypto get kind of get its groove back, right? So I don't know what form that's going to take. I definitely don't think we're going to see some of the more absurd uh, things come roaring back like Dogecoin at hundreds of thousands of dollars or million dollar NFT uh, things or or any of that. Um, But just in the same way that pets.com, just in the same way that Amazon, right. Um, You know, kerploded in 2001 with the big uh, dot-com bust, Um, but it didn't tank the internet stock, right. Amazon certainly didn't go away after 2020 or excuse me, 2001, um, the internet stock didn't go away. It just kind of shifted, morphed, 
took a different form and became um, you know, something new. I, I don't think crypto, the so-called crypto winter has permanently killed off crypto stocks. Um, I think blockchain as a technology is increasingly becoming just part of the way that companies are doing business and uh, is going to be increasingly part of the um, the landscape going forward. In fact, um, we had a bull versus bear column not too long ago um, where Carrie Gordon, one of my writers, was arguing this very case about blockchain just becoming part of the of the fabric of how we do business in the same way that the internet is part of the fabric of the way we do business. Now, I don't think that means we're going to see a spot Bitcoin ETF. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. <laughs> don't, I think that ship has sailed. I think we are not going to see a spot Bitcoin ETF approved until you and I are both in like the retirement home, to be honest, at this point, I don't think there's an appetite for it. I don't think there's yeah, either on the regulator's side or for investors. I just don't think it's, I think it's, it's over. It's done. Let it, let it die. I think you're probably right there. Uh, I, I do think one will be approved at some point, uh, but it's going to be a while. The only thing that I'll note there is we do have this grayscale lawsuit against yeah. the SEC. Now, I don't know if you saw this. The uh, SEC just filed their first brief in response to that lawsuit. And if you read through that, they're not budging, right? Which isn't a surprise, but they're using all the same language that they've used in the previous denials of spot Bitcoin ETFs. But I guess my question for you is, could that lawsuit change anything here? I mean, is it possible Grayscale could prevail and uh, and that paves the path to, to spot Bitcoin ETF approval? I mean, sure, it's possible they could prevail, I suppose. Anything is possible. I, I, I mean, if anybody has a shot, it's Grayscale, right? Because they, they've they got the, um, you know, they're they're one of the biggest names and they have a, a lot of uh, great lawyers and, and so on, um, you know, great resources available to them. But, you know, I know that uh, what happened with FTX and, uh, you know, that sort of contagion, the crypto contagion there, it's not necessarily equivalent to Bitcoin. Um, different, you know, crypto exchange is not the same thing as the actual coin itself. Um, but it's difficult to say that there's no manipulation in the crypto exchanges when there's a very high profile example of how there was collusion and, 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 you know, manipulation and, and all of like, and fraud going on. So, um, it's, uh, crypto just generally speaking from the coins to the blockchain technology to everything is unfortunately, it's all getting tarred with the same brush. It's all getting painted with the same brush. And now there's a real big perception problem that, um, they're going to have to overcome. I think as an industry, as a, as you know, a lot of companies are going to have to just, um, kind of overcome that reputational risk, I guess. So, but I think that can happen. Okay, so for 2023, uh, I, I'm, I'm writing this down. We have that the 60-40 portfolio is dead, but crypto is not dead. Anything else? We got about a, a minute or two left here. Anything else for 2023? So I think in 2023, something life-changing is going to happen in the first couple months of the year. So that I'm basing on historical data in 2020. 
in March, there was the COVID lockdowns that spread through the world. In 2021, there was an insurrection attempt, and then there was fallout from that and kind of a polit- grand political shift. In 2022, there was a war that broke out between Russia and Ukraine and completely you know, upended the commodities market. So I'm telling you, the second the ball drops on January 1st, I am shutting my door, I am bolting it shut, and I am hiding out in my house until after Mardi Gras. So y'all can just <laughs> go have fun in the apocalypse. Go, go have fun. I'll come out around May and and we'll see where we are. Well, geez, you're just getting uh, listeners all optimistic for the start of the new year. <laughs> I like to leave people on a, on a high note, you know, feeling good after my appearances. Oh, man, that's uh, like sell everything, right? Like you said, <laughs> and, and once a commodities base. reporter, always a commodities reporter. I, I'm yeah. going to hope that uh, that you are 100% wrong on that. But uh, <laughs> Laura, we're going to have to leave it there. As always, just fantastic stuff this week. I hope you and your family uh, enjoy the holiday season. Thank you so much for a great year on the podcast. And uh, you know, I look forward to chatting again in uh, 2023. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And congratulations on another fantastic year of podcasts. Can't wait Thank for 2023. You. That was Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify. NASDAQ ETFs are always on the leading edge of market quality, execution, and reform. Providing tailored ETF services spanning product development, compliance, trading, market structure support, and unparalleled marketing tools to differentiate, activate, and amplify your brand throughout your product lifecycle. Visit our ETF landing page today for high-touch ETF support every step of the way. joined by Ben Johnson, Head of Client Solutions Asset Management at Morningstar, who, of course, is a leading independent provider of investment research, rating uh, tools. And as I always say, Ben is absolutely in the pantheon of ETF nerds. This is someone who's been covering the space for a long time and covering it extremely well. And he's now on the line with me from Chicago. Ben, always a uh, pleasure. Great having you back on the podcast. Always a pleasure, Nate. And you certainly know how to make a guy blush. (laughs) Well, I was uh, looking back. I probably say this every year. This is our uh, fifth straight year of having you close out the year on uh, ETF Prime. And uh, I I said at the top, this is one of my favorite episodes that we do every year. I just love recapping uh, the the year that was in ETFs and looking ahead. It's so much fun when you have an industry growing the way uh, ETF industry is. I'm with you, Nate. It's become one of my favorite holiday traditions. So glad to be back. All right. So let's start with the obvious. Let's get your ETF story of the year, and then we can branch out from there. And I thought just for background, let me give you my top four stories, which I put these out on Twitter as a poll. Uh, and then I'll give you Laura Krigger's top three stories. And then you can tell me uh, what you think about all of this. So I thought the four biggest stories in 2022 
were the 600 or so billion dollars that flowed into ETFs despite a very difficult market environment. And we should probably talk more about that regardless. But this will end up as the second best year of inflows ever, which I just find highly impressive. Now, my other three stories would be the first single security ETF, so single stock and single bond ETFs, the rise of active ETFs, and then uh, I'm sure you recall Russia ETFs being halted and, and some of them closed. And then prior to you, uh, Laura was on and she said her top story was equity income ETFs, so uh, dividend ETFs attracting investor interest, which it was a record year of inflows there as well. And then she also noted increased interest around commodity ETFs. And I, I've got to tell you, what was a huge surprise to me, she highlighted the lackluster year in ESG ETFs. I, I, I couldn't believe my ears. So with all of that, Ben, give us your top ETF story of 2022. Yeah, I, I think anchoring on the, the term obvious, Nate, and obvious with a capital O is that it's been a tough year in markets. So if you just kind of look at the scoreboard, the Morningstar U.S. market index is down almost 20% year to date. Our flagship bond index is down nearly 15%. And pain has been widespread. So if you look across the 128 Morningstar fund categories, only nine of those have seen positive average returns for the year to date. What bright spots we have seen uh, are few and far between and generally limited to the energy and the alt space. But you know, my top story is that you know, money has been put in motion. Many investors are turning lemons into lemonade, and they've seized this opportunity uh, to take the money and run. So year-to-date through November, investors yanked $827 billion from mutual funds, billion with a B, in organic terms. So looking at those flows and sizing them uh, based on year-end 2021 assets, this is going to be the worst year ever for organic growth in the mutual fund space. And a lot of that money, $543 billion, has gone into ETFs. So that's a nearly $1.4 trillion swing in favor of ETFs. That's the biggest ever. So, you know, when you take a step back and say, well, what's going on here? I, I think a lot of investors have kind of been playing the role of Phil Collins, waiting for the beat drop in, in the air tonight. So, you know, three <laughs> minutes and 40 seconds into that song, is that moment that Phil and anybody listening to it had been waiting for. And similarly, I think what we're seeing is that nearly 30 years into the ETF experiment, we've reached this moment that many investors have been waiting for, a moment, again, to put money in motion, realize some losses on their mutual funds that might have been in gains and make a break for the more tax-efficient ETF wrapper. But I, I think that it's important to stress that that's not the only factor at play that ETFs aren't just taking share from mutual funds because they're more tax efficient. They're also cheaper, more convenient, and just generally more compatible, I would argue, with modern advice models. And I think it's also important that you know, people not overlook the fact that ETFs aren't just drinking mutual funds milkshake. They're also taking share from derivatives like S&P 500 futures, single securities, and more. And if I had to land this on what I think is one of the single most underappreciated developments, not just from 2022, but what we've seen over the course of the past few decades is how ETFs have been fundamentally transforming 
the way that fixed income securities are traded. So it's it's easy to kind of like you know, oversimplify this and say that this is just a battle between ETFs and, and mutual funds. You know, I, I think this is just sort of one chapter in a longer story, which, you know, once it's written long, long from now is is going to be titled something like Life After Mutual Funds, and, and ETFs play an important role in this story. No, I think all of that is extremely well said, and I'll, I'll, I'll zero in on this uh, the, the, the mutual fund outflow, so this record $1.4 trillion gap between money flowing into ETFs and, and out of mutual funds this year. I, I mentioned this earlier to Laura. I think we'll look back on 2022 as the year that mutual funds formally handed the baton to ETFs. And and I said, you know, that may seem odd, given that we are, to, to your point, 30 years now since the advent of the first ETF. Actually, SPY will, uh, will turn 30 here in January. But I, I just think this is the year when the, the tide really did turn. And I, there's just no going back now. There's really been a, a format change in the investment vehicle. But I also agree with what you said in that there are other factors here as well uh, that are helping propel ETFs and and cause money to come out of mutual funds. So, no, I, I think we're in agreement. And by the way, my uh, my Twitter poll that I ran uh, agreed with us. It was pretty even overall, but uh, second best year of inflows ever eked out a, uh, a win among the, uh, the, the Twitterati. Um, okay, so besides this uh, th- this money in motion, any quick comments or thoughts on any of the other stories I mentioned? Anything standing out to you from uh, from those? Yeah, I, I think ESG has been another area certainly that uh, has got a lot of attention, if if not a lot of flows. In fact, if you look back uh, you know, to the end of November, what we saw broadly across both ESG ETFs and mutual funds was the the third consecutive month of outflows. So, you know, demand for ESG funds is, is grown to a halt in some cases, uh, you know, now reversed. Um, and, you know, a lot of that has to do with the fact that ESG, especially in the retail space, has become a, a bit of a, a political lightning rod, to, to put it lightly. You know, that said, what I would say is that there are other lanes of traffic in the ESG space that, you know, don't have a, a three-car pileup in the middle of rush hour right now and are actually moving uh, full speed ahead. So, you know, despite what you might guess from a lot of these recent headlines, most asset managers are continuing to plug away in the background. They're integrating ESG into their portfolio management workflows and their businesses more broadly. Uh, many, save for now Vanguard, still need to meet their net zero commitments, and they need to deliver and continue to deliver ESG strategies to their institutional clients. So, you know, I, I would say, you know, as it pertains to ESG more broadly, it, don't buy the headlines. ESG is still very much alive and well, but it's facing some serious impediments, some real challenges in the retail space with advisors and with individuals. And I think until we get more clarity from regulators just in terms of like what are the rules of engagement with respect to you know everything from fund names to uh you know climate disclosures you name it i I think appetite is going to remain muted within this space outside of the most devout esg disciples no i i agree with that i guess my only counter there is if we're waiting on regulators to offer clarity here you know, are we going to count on the SEC to determine what is and what isn't ESG? That that just strikes me as 
somewhat problematic. Uh, you know, we have ESG ratings agencies out there that can't agree on what is ESG and, and what isn't. I just, I have a lot of concerns over taking something that I think is really personal and trying to put it into a one-size-fits-all box. Now, maybe we can talk later. I do think there's a real path for ESG via direct indexing or custom indexing. I just, uh, I, I have concerns that this will ever, uh, you know, really find a, a longer-term path to success on the package fund side. But I, I certainly can't, could be wrong, but I've been wrong before. Yeah, and I, I don't necessarily disagree with you, Nate, especially when you think of just how personal some of the different criteria are that you're trying to in, integrate into an investment framework and, um, you know, package that. It, it, ESG is much more difficult to scale than, you know, name your benchmark provider total stock market index fund just by definition. Um, any thoughts specifically on the rise of active ETFs? And the reason that I ask is because my sense is, you're a, uh, a pretty strong believer in the merits of indexing. And I'm just curious if you think active ETFs can uh, find a successful path here, grow to have meaningful market share, or if you just think indexing is going to continue dominating. And I, I'll just add to that, you know, clearly the market environment has shifted. And I think some would argue perhaps now uh, it, it, the, the environment is more conducive to, to active management. Any thoughts on the, uh, the, the, the rise of active ETFs? Yeah, I, I, Nate, I, I think you probably got somewhere in your archives a, a clip of my very not bold prediction that I've made for I don't know how many years running uh, that you know, the, the the most broadly diversified, like lowest cost index ETFs are probably going to continue to garner the overwhelming majority of flows. And I, I think that's going to continue to be the case. But what you see is that at the margin, active ETFs are and I believe will continue to make inroads. Uh, it's a category that's been punching well above its weight in 2022, uh, getting a disproportionately large amount of flows. Uh, we've seen you know, some of the most storied franchises in the asset management industry, including Capital Group, uh, you know, make their ETF debut at long last in 2022. Uh, you know, long gone are the days now, too, where people are asking whether active ETFs are an oxymoron. And, and you see it in product development, right? Active ETFs uh, for a few years running now represented the majority of new launches. If, if you take just active at face value, if you expand your definition of active to include things like, you know, index funds that are thematic or track specific factors or what have you, uh, I would argue that we've seen, I believe, only three traditional index funds, index ETFs, that is, launched in 2022. Um, so active is, is very much here, very much here to stay. I think each year we're going to see you know, broader acceptance of the fact that the ETF is just a way to package, distribute, and consume all sorts of investment strategies, active, passive, and in between. And the ETF is generally a more cost and tax efficient wrapper than the mutual fund. So, you know, long from now, I, I think we'll ultimately stop treating ETFs as if they're somehow special. I, I think if you look at, say, Gen Z investors, they'll be ETF natives, if you will, the same, they're, same way they're tech natives. Um, you know, they're tech natives. They're never going to you know, call their friends' houses using a rotary phone to ask Mr. Smith if Johnny can ride bikes. Uh, you know, it's unlikely that you know, they're ever going to distinguish between ETFs and, and mutual funds. 
All right, before we uh, move on to 2023, what I thought we might do here, Ben, is go rapid fire on some of your ETF favorites from this year. And so I thought I'll tee up the uh, the question. You just give me your quick answer and, and perhaps offer a little color, color if that works for you. Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. So uh, first, give me your ETF of the year, if you had to choose just one. Yeah. So if, if we look at uh, the, the new launches, so favorite new ETF launch um, of 2022 here, I, I'll have to defer to our, our manager research team. Uh, they've been naming the best and worst new ETFs of the year for a number of years now. Uh, and featuring on this year's best list is DFA small cap value ETF. So that's DF. SV. Uh, my colleague Brian Armour, I, I love this quote from Brian, wrote that DFSV is as close as you can get to UG, a Eugene Fama white paper in ETF form. Uh, so this is an ETF that follows the same strategy as a mutual fund uh, that DFA launched in 1993. That fund has outperformed its index, the Russell 2000 Value Index, by one and a half percentage points annualized since its inception, it's now available in a new wrapper that's more broadly available, more convenient, more tax efficient. Uh, there's a, a lot to like there. Okay, so would you go with that as your ETF of the year, or your favorite new ETF launch? Favorite new ETF launch. All right. Do you have an ETF of the year? Or are, uh, are you deferring to, on that? It, 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 it's, it's tough to, to name just one. Uh, you know, Nate, certainly there are a number of, of different, uh, you know, examples, some from, uh, you know, up and comers. I'm, I'm thinking of Andrew Beer and uh, DBMF, which yeah. has gotten a lot of airtime, has had a tremendous year. JEPI from JP Morgan uh, has been just an absolute monster from a, an asset gathering perspective. Um, you know, there are countless e examples when you look across the landscape. It's you know, really tough to, to pick just one. No, I think those are those are good ones. I mean, certainly, I, again, I mentioned this earlier, DBMF, I think, has to be up there just given the success that it's seen this year. Jeppy's a good one. I guess if I had a pick, I might go boring here and pick SEHD. Uh, because if you look at the, this is the Schwab dividend ETF, this thing is fifth in flows year to date. And Schwab is just such a uh, quiet operator behind the scenes. And, you know, you look, this thing's up on the leaderboard with IBV and, and VU and, you know, the, the ETFs that are always dotting the, uh, the, the leaderboard. So I might I might Absolutely. pick SEHD. Now, on favorite new launch, I, I, go I'm ahead. I'm with yeah. you there, Nate. I just I have to chime in. SCHD has been a longtime favorite of, of Morningstar, uh, carries a Morningstar analyst rating of, of silver. And every time we've ever published an article on SCHD, DHD, it inevitably becomes one of the top performing articles on Morningstar.com. Uh, in Morningstar, uh, you know, subscribers, Morningstar investors just can't seem to get enough of that fund. That's and a perfect that example, though. No, I mean, yeah. I think that's a great example. Just this thing, it's a, again, I call it like a quiet operator, but investors love it. And, uh, you know, this year more than any other, we, we've seen that, uh, you know, this thing move up the, uh, the top of the leaderboard. By the way, if I had to go favorite new ETF launch, this maybe is a little cliche. I'd probably, Ben, go with the uh, the two Nightshares ETFs, NSPY and NIWM, and not necessarily because I think 
investors need to, to you know, load up on these ETFs. I'm just fascinated to watch these. This is something I, I know you're out on Twitter. I kept seeing the night effect debated out on Twitter. Uh, you know, why wasn't there an ETF that attempted to capture this? There was a lot of discussion regarding whether transaction costs would eat up uh, any potential alpha here. Who knows what's going to happen moving forward? You know, as of now, these are both underperforming their, their benchmarks, so they have performed much better here recently. They, they, they had a tough start out of the gate. But I'm just fascinated to, uh, to watch those. I don't know if you have any quick thoughts on those. Yeah, an interesting experiment, Nate. It's always uh, you know, fun to see what happens when, you know, something that was hatched in the, you know, ivory towers of academia or a white paper, uh, you know, what happens when it finally gets to ground level and exits to uh, – the streets in, in, in Wall Street, whether, you know, it can survive transaction costs and taxes and all the, the real world realities that are often, um, you know, ignored in, in the laboratory experiment that hatches these ideas. Yeah, and that's why I just think they'll be fun to watch moving forward. Um, OK, let's keep going here. Best new ETF ticker symbol of 2022. Oh, this one was really tough, Nate. So it was running down the list. Um, certainly some good one offs uh, like y'all. Punk uh, year is, is one of my favorites from Alliance Bernstein. But I ultimately have to give credit to the Simplify team uh, for their, I'll call it their ticker game batting average. Uh, so this year they launched uh, Buck, B-U-C-K, their stable income ETF, CTA, uh, a managed futures fund, uh, and Maxi, M-A-X-I, uh, as in Bitcoin maximalist, I, I guess. Uh, this is a, a Bitcoin plus income strategy. So the the, the Simplify team, in, in my opinion, takes the cake just for uh, their, their batting average, if nothing else. They're great. I would put them right up there with uh, with Roundhill. Roundhill's always one that comes to mind in terms of their ticker game. Uh, and again, if I had to select here, I'm probably going to go boring. You mentioned my ticker symbol, which would be year, the Alliance Bernstein a short income ETF. I just think what a perfect ticker for what that ETF does. I, I just love that. Um, okay, lastly, who would be your ETF issuer of the year? Yeah, it, it, it's a tough call, but I have to give credit uh, to the team at Capital Group for finally joining the ETF party and, and not just joining, but making a, a strong start. So they sit today at about $5.5 in AUM, which puts them already at number 11 uh, among the largest active ETF shops. And I'd add the Capital Group Growth ETF, uh, CGGR, uh, also features on our research team's list of the best new ETFs of the year. I agree. I think it's tough to uh, select anybody other than Capital Group with that $5.5 billion. If I had to go off the beaten path a little bit, I, I guess I would probably select Strive, and, and here's why. Whether or not you agree with Strive's sort of guiding principles in terms of how they approach proxy voting, I wonder if them, along with an issuer like Engine Number 1, is giving us a glimpse into the future on uh, the, the quote-unquote ESG side in that if you're an investor, because as we talked about, Ben, it's so difficult to package up people's personal preferences into a one-size-fits-all fund, I wonder if investors will start paying closer attention in, in, on how asset managers vote proxies and just try to align with firms who overall share their, their similar views. 
And that's obviously what Strive is attempting to, to do here. They have a set of principles or views that they're putting out in the market. Uh, if you agree with them, great. You can invest in their ETFs. Just like engine number one, you're getting broad exposure. They're not excluding. They're not including any particular holdings. They're just giving you broad market exposure to you know whatever segment of the market the ETF tracks. But then what they're doing is they're attempting to enact change through uh, through, through voting. So I, I just... I, I think that that concept, even though it's been done before with engine number one, um, I wonder if that's giving us, again, a glimpse into the future on on how things might happen uh, with other asset managers. Yeah, and I, I think a glimpse into the future and also just a, a peek into the present, if you will, um, you know, just the expansion of choice along a number of different vectors, right? Like, what, yeah. mean, what does ESG mean? How is your proxy voted? And, and we saw a number of, of meaningful moves this year. Uh, you know, by Vanguard, BlackRock, uh, you know, Schwab, most recently State Street, to increasingly put you know, proxy power, uh, that asset, which is ultimately their end investor's asset, uh, you know, closer to, you know, the end investor, right, to, to put the onus, um, you know, facilitated by some sort of, you know, software or, or um, survey, uh, you know, to, to give investors the option to, you know, voice uh, their own opinions and not rely on you know the in-house kind of governance uh, teams to to do it on their their behalf. Yeah, and again, I think we'll see a lot more of that uh, here moving forward. Okay, good segue. With our remaining time, let's look ahead. Let's look ahead at 2023. Give us uh, two or three ETF stories you're you're watching for next year. If you want to offer a prediction, you can. I know you're not big on predictions. Uh, j- just give us two or three stories here. Yeah, so one, I, I've, I've got to take the opposite side of the argument from Lara um, uh, regarding the, the 60-40 portfolio. Uh, so I'm going to channel my inner Brian Johnson, not Ben Johnson, and no relation, uh, who some of you might know is the third lead singer of ACDC, uh, <laughs> and say that the 60-40 will never die. Uh, it's going to have bad years every now and then. This year, it's had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad year. Uh, but it always has and likely always will bounce back. Now, that's not to say that improving on the 60-40 is impossible or it's the right portfolio for everybody, but it's worked well for a lot of folks, and it has proven really hard for many to do much better. Um, so I don't think the 60-40 is going away. There's so many obituaries that have been written for this portfolio for so long, uh, it's exceedingly difficult to to understand why it's done so well. I would argue a lot of it just has to do with simplicity and, and costs at the end of the day. Um, but I've, I've got to disagree with, with Laura on this one. Uh, I, I don't think the 60-40 is going to die. No, I agree. And obviously, Laura's not here to defend herself. But I, I told her, look, I think that 40 percent um, it's looking more attractive now because rates have come up yeah. and you can scoop up, you know, again, five, six or, uh, you know, at least a four and a half, five percent yield relatively uh, risk free. Uh, and so it, it just makes that portion of the portfolio uh, much more attractive than what we have seen over the past decade. So I agree. Um, anything else on your radar for 2023? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking at you know, direct indexing and in, in, I would say just kind of sophomore Software more generally. So direct indexing, in, in my mind, is really just a piece of software that sits on top of a separate account um, and you know, takes input you know, from the end investor, uh, from the client, from the advisor, and, and uses that to, to build a portfolio. I, I've got a Goldilocks stance on direct indexing. 
Um, I'm not too hot on it, not too cold. I, I think taking just the right temperature. Um, I think direct indexing uh, as a piece of software that makes portfolio construction, portfolio maintenance a, a conversation allows for, for a level of tax optimization, customization is very valuable as a means for managing assets for a very specific type of investors and specifically their tax circumstances. But as soon as you stray from the top tax bracket, building completion portfolios around concentrated stock holdings uh, and being able to regularly refresh your tax lots with new cash flows uh, to kind of stave off off locking up your your basis, the value of of direct indexing, uh, in my opinion, starts to diminish pretty quickly. And what we've seen is that the direction of travel has been to bring direct indexing you know, uh, to a, a larger audience than ever before. And I would argue that that larger audience, especially smaller investors, are going to get uh, you know, the least benefit from this construct unless you want to try to measure kind of the intangibles of being able to build a portfolio that, um, you know, is, is very specific to your needs. But what we've seen to date is that there's very little evidence that uh, investors are, are putting any degree of value or much value for that matter on things that don't have to do with paying less taxes, um, which is very immediately measurable. Um, so, you know, that said, I'm, I'm more generally just bullish on software and software's role you know, within this industry. And we talked a bit before about proxy voting and the way in which, you know, software will facilitate you know, voting on the behalf of individual fund shareholders, or at least the selection of a policy that aligns with their values. Um, I, I think we're going to continue to see an evolution in this space and software manifests itself everywhere. Uh, you, you look at robo advisors, you look at model portfolios, which I would argue are really just a form of software at the end of the day. Um, the way in which software is making asset management investment advice conversational and more personal than ever. I'm, I'm very bullish on that. So I think direct indexing is, you know, a software application is going to continue to evolve. I think you'll see it evolve in proxy. You'll see it continue to shape this industry going forward. And, you know, what we've seen to date is that has been tremendously beneficial for the end investor. No, I agree with that. I think uh, most people know my views on direct indexing. I, I think they align pretty well with what you said. I view direct indexing. It's another tool in the toolbox for investors. And there are specific use cases where it makes a lot of sense, which you touched on. Um, higher net worth investors who are looking to, to minimize taxes. If you have investors with concentrated single stock positions uh, that you know they don't want to add on to by investing uh, in the same stocks that are in a benchmark. Um, ESG, which we mentioned earlier, if you want to express those personal preferences, there are good reasons to use direct indexing, but I think for the vast majority of investors, uh, it's tough to beat the the ETF wrapper, just the, the all the things that you've been touching on, the tax efficiency, uh, the the cost, just the, the ability to easily get exposure, the, the ability to just get passive exposure. Because again, I think direct indexing uh, at the end of the day is active management. You're taking established benchmarks and tweaking them. And we know historically, if you look at the data, that tends not to be a, a, a great bet. So um, I, I agree. It's it's software. There's there's good use cases for it. It's not the ETF killer uh, that, that gets put out there in the media, but uh, it will have, um, you know, an opportunity to, to, to gather assets and, and 
I, I think will have a place. It's just not going to be the dominant place in a portfolio, in my opinion. But uh, Ben, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I hope you and your family enjoy the holiday season. And uh, I look forward to chatting again next year, probably at uh, Exchange in February. Oh, I could not be more excited for that, Nate, to see you and, and also to uh, you know not be pushing a, a snowblower, as it looks like <laughs> I'm going to be doing here imminently. So uh, I'll, I'll take Miami in February any day, especially because it's such a great event and, and always a great opportunity to you know, catch up with, with you and, and our fellow ETF nerds and everybody around the industry. So very much looking forward to it and, and happy holidays to you and your family. Hey, thank you. This was a, a lot of fun. That was Ben Johnson, head of Client Solutions Asset Management at Morningstar. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Goldman Sachs Asset Management. If you would like to learn more about Goldman Sachs Asset Management's ETFs, you can visit gsam.com slash ETFs. No podcast uh, next week. I will be taking a much-needed break during the uh, holidays, but I will be right back here the first week of the new year with none other then vetifies Dave Nodding. Uh, he is a financial futurist, so we're going to peer into his crystal ball to see not only what next year might hold, but what Dave is tracking over the next several years. Should be a lot of fun. Until then, have a great week, everyone.